Welcome to Free Thoughts, a podcast about libertarianism and the ideas that influence it. Free Thoughts is a project of the Cato Institute's libertarianism.org. I'm Aaron Powell, editor of libertarianism.org and a research fellow at the Cato Institute. And I'm Trevor Burris, a research fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies. Many policies are justified on the basis of market failure, that when markets fail, government needs to step in. But what is market failure? What does it mean for the market to fail? Joining us to discuss this is our colleague Peter Van Dorn, senior fellow at the Cato Institute and editor of Regulation Magazine. Peter, a lot of the times when people are calling for government to intervene in some way, there ought to be a law, they, they're doing it based on this notion of market failure. They say the market has failed in some way, so government has to stop, step in and fix it. Um, so what, what do people mean when they talk about market failure? Well, within an economics, market failure has a, has a very precise definition and, and for that I have to do a little bit of intellectual history. Uh, the, in, a, in, a, in a written blue book exam, one would – in my class at least, I would want the following answer which I'll then unpack which is market failure simply is the failure of a set of institutions called markets to implement a theoretical ideal called the Pareto rule. OK. So what's the – so so I want to uh, – so Market failure exists um, as, a, as a way of thinking about a set of institutions and the set of institutions are a device to implement a rule, so the Pareto rule. Vilfredo Pareto is one of the um, fathers, if you will, of modern neoclassical economics and so lots of things in economics are named after him. And the Pareto rule simply stated is just that if we look at an economy transaction by transaction, the Pareto rule says that all transactions that make someone better off and no one worse off should occur. So and this is good should go to their highest and best uses type of thing? That's another way of saying it. But basically the Pareto rule says let markets flourish. Let, let, let Sorry, let trades flourish. That make both parties better off. Well, that makes someone better off and no one okay. worse off and that's the – that's the weak Pareto rule. The strong Pareto rule is that everyone's better off through all the transactions. But let's say the weak Pareto rule is, is what I have in mind. And then a separate sentence would say, under many circumstances, markets are a sufficient condition to perfectly implement the Pareto rule. It's simply uh, – So what would be some of those circumstances? Just like five people in a room trying to trade uh, – some some small gadget, some something they all have, and then everyone can make a trade, and everyone can feel better off or worse off, and no one or no one feels worse off after the trades. That's the key, right? And so you, so that's a, a small person or a small an economy, and then you scale it up, and you've got the United States and the world, et cetera. So, so this is like I've heard this kind of experiment for teaching this to kids, which seemed to clarify it somewhat. This giving out candy in a classroom, um, so you have you know. The, the teacher brings in a bag of candy, different kinds of candy and ex gives them out to all the kids. Every kid gets a piece and every kid is happy that they got candy but then you give all of them the opportunity to exchange this candy and they choose to and suddenly all of them are even more happy because these these trades, no one's worse off. They all you – know, if they like the candy they had, they kept it and they certainly don't not have candy now after the trading. But if you like Hershey bars more than M&Ms, you can trade them and everyone – gets happy and so we end up in a more Pareto optimal 
situation. Without after producing the, any more goods. Well, a, right. A Pareto optimum, right, is is a state of affairs in which all Pareto improvements have taken place, and and no further transaction is possible because the transactions would violate the Pareto rule. I.e., it would make someone worse off to to. And of course, in in a free market, no one imp- can impose something on someone else, and so. The, the the definition of the Pareto rule leads you to think about well then what are market fair why wouldn't markets under what circumstances would markets fail to implement the Pareto rule when we talk about better and worse off I guess by what criteria or by whose standards are we talking so are we talking like in this case you know these these children each child thinks he's better off because he's got a candy he likes better but someone else could say no you're not better off because you know the candy you got is smaller or it's really like you know this one is is worse it in these ways in the it run. will hurt you in the long run so are we talking like when we judge well, pareto is who's doing the judging and, well in fact that's a big part of of any intro to economic well at least in my view it's a very important concept to distinguish a benthamite view of welfare or utility an operation or neoclassical view and the transition from Benthamite social science to Pareto is – marks the division between something called economics and something called political science. Actually, oh, interesting. In, so in the Benthamite view. rule would be what? Well, Bentham thought of utility or welfare as an intrapsychic concept which could be measured through the uh, equivalent of a thermometer, a utilitometer. I mean that there was this – it didn't really exist. Yeah. But in wealth – in kind of Benthamite thinking, there were interpersonal comparisons were possible. And so I could tell through some utilitometer that um, – Aaron is 55 units of happy and, and I'm, I'm 53. And, and For example, this gets right to redistribution which is um, – in most economics classes, you're taught that the decreasing marginal utility of money, right? So Meaning, the more, the more you get, the the less valuable valuable it is. So, taking a dollar away from Bill Gates and giving that dollar to someone on that's homeless would obviously improve welfare in a Benthamite setting because the decrease in utility from Bill Gates is infinitesimal because he has $40 billion and so taking one away can't mean much to him. But that's a Benthamite view you're saying. Right. And I'll, then I'll go to Pareto. So, but giving a dollar to the homeless person would improve their welfare ginormously um, and thus in a Benthamite world, the uh, losses are low and the benefits are high and therefore um, that kind of transaction in a Benthamite world would be approved. Mm-hmm. Pareto, right, the shift to Pareto and the division between political science and economics is this subtle but very important transition to an intrapsychic concept of welfare where we could add and subtract utilities across people somehow to the person and only the person can judge whether or not a transaction makes them better off or not and we no longer actually have a separate measure of welfare. All we actually observe is behavior. Mm-hmm. So it's like almost like BF, BF Skinner behaviorism. All I can see is what you do. I can't look inside your head. So we end up with I, welfare in a paration world being defined tautologically with trading. Mm-hmm. So allow to, to, so Bentham thought we could figure everything out and, and uh, um, some 
modern views of the welfare state are often thought of in, as Benthamite in origin, whereas a, in neoclassical economics, there's just trading and then there's coercion. And those are the two and so states. If people trade, they're better off because they trade. How, how do we know they're better off? Because they trade. Why do they trade? Because they're better off. So there's really a, a, a tautological definition of welfare or utility in a paration world and it's just – a different way of saying we observe people trading hmm. um, and it doesn't and, and then so what does modern economics have to say about um, <clears throat> transactions that make some people better off and some people worse off and the answer is nothing and it has nothing to say about such transactions and because we're and, outside of the Benthamite world. Well, no, we're outside of the Paration world. We, we would have to be Benthamite and oh. there are no interpersonal comparisons in modern neoclassical economics and so the shift to Pareto, um, in effect, I have a, a diagram in my class that I use where I talk about a two-person economy and I have um, a, a one person on the x-axis and another on the y. And I talk about four kinds of, of trades between them, trades where both of us are better off, trades where one of us is better off and one is worse off. And then a fourth quadrant is where trades between us make us both worse off. Mm -hmm. And I joke and say um, quadrant one is is modern economics. I Both people are better off because they're trading. Quadrants two and three are political science or sociology where we discuss whether using coercion to redistribute from somebody to somebody else does or does not make the society or them or Whatever better. Peter's making scare quotes there for everyone else. <laughs> yes, the society. Yes. And then quadrant four, I joke just to see if they're awake, is is about relationships between people and psychiatry, where, where <laughs> two you, people can be worse. You're off. married and you <laughs> think you're better off, but you're not, and you don't know it. And then they laugh, and then they. Quit. So, so maybe sometimes people talk about market failures when and we talk about the types of ones there are, where people are trading or maybe not trading, or it's some sort of non-Pareto optimal uh, state of the market where. You're not achieving Pareto optimality. So that you can think of two – I mean to me, they're, they're, most economics classes have, have lists of market failures and they have different categories. But once you think about them, you realize they're all fall into in, – in, I believe at least two kinds of arguments. And then you could even say that actually just falls into one. So let me illustrate. So the, the first class is, is what are usually called public goods where – it's difficult or impossible or expensive and we could talk about the difference between those three things to restrict consumption of that good to those who pay for it. So that's not excludability. And consumption of that good is non-rivalrous. Those are the two part definition of a public good. A public good must have those both of those characteristics. No non-rivalrous meaning that if someone uses it, you don't take it away from someone else. Whereas, so I'll, I'll give an example. So, <clears throat> an apple um, is a private good. Mm -hmm. uh, so we can restrict consumption to those who pay, and consumption is rivalrous. I, you and I cannot chew on the same apple at the same time. And then the students go, "Ooh, rah, rah, right!" If I talk about well, man. so the, a public good. Think of knowledge, the knowledge of humanity. Anything, <laughs> the the what goes into a smartphone, what what or goes into meta, the knowledge about anything. 
consumption of knowledge is non-rivalrous, right? You can, once it exists, your, your, your knowing and using the knowledge does not detract in any way from my knowing it. Um, and it is difficult or impossible or expensive to restrict consumption of knowledge to those who pay. And so that's why you can think of the Constitution and, and even in the libertarian world had this notion that maybe copyrights we ought to patents. have copyrights and patents. We ought to try to create quasi-property rights for information, but that's very difficult to do and they ought to be of limited term, et cetera, et cetera. Is national defense another example of these public – that's the one that I hear the usual, a lot of. The usual classic example in any kind of economics class of a pure public good is defense and that by defense we mean the protection of, of people within a border i.e. because if you add more people within the border, the it doesn't raise the marginal cost of defending the border and – Consumption of the defense of the border for all those within it is non-rivalrous. You and I and all of us can consume the defense of the United States at the same time. So I think that um, we've said that public good here is a very economics definition. This is what an economics textbook would tell you: non-rivalrous, non-excludable. Correct. And it doesn't mean good for the public. Which some people maybe use it as an it's good for the public. It's a, this is a public good. Universities are a public good. Roads are a public good, and they usually mean I think that it's good for the public. Well, <laughs> public goods in economics can also be public bads. That is that the you can have a commodity that has negative effects on people, but you can't restrict that easily to those who pay for it. Mm -hmm. And consumption of the badness is. So the term good in public good has nothing to do with its – Goodness. Nor is, yeah, it's yeah, desirability. It's not a value judgment. No. It's a and, uh, and many – most things offered by the uh, – well, take education. Educate, pub, pub, when you ask most people, even economists sometimes will say education is a public good. And I'm thinking, no, it's not. I mean you, <clears throat> you can restrict the consumption of education to those who pay for it. Because education is not knowledge in this situation. It's, it's, it's instruction yeah. and interaction with, a, with an instructor and whatnot and it, it, it occurs within, I used to say, classrooms. Now it can occur online uh, and uh, consumption is – we could talk about whether it's rivalrous or not but the, the key is that classrooms – well, you, they have a size. Do they have congestion once – yeah, like, um, like roads. Like, like once the class size gets to be a certain certain level, is there a degradation in quality from the from the point of view of the educational consumer? The whole rationale for small liberal arts colleges is that the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> is that point. the big uh, flagship <clears throat> state universities don't pay attention to you? You'll be a number. Come to. You name the college and you'll be in the classes of 12 and 15 and we care about you. Mm -hmm. So going back to market failures, we had public good ones. And how, how are public goods an example of a market failure then? Of them not being provided? Would that be an example? Yeah, the, like what, what private, makes them fall within that? The private provision of public goods would be difficult. Or expensive or impossible, and again, so because the private entity that tried to supply the good, the commodity, would have difficulty or impossibility of being paid for that item, and second, 
even if initially they provided it, they couldn't then restrict newcomers from consuming because it's non-rivalrous. So it's those characteristics of a commodity that make it, I'm repeating here again, difficult, uh, expensive, or impossible to provide privately. Um, libertarians are often fond of trying to provide clever examples of X exists, therefore it's not a public good, right? Somebody tries to they're, – they're mercenaries and mm-hmm. all that. Well, I mean again, but government – mercenaries are paid f- by governments. Uh, yeah, they haven't disproved them. You know, they're private armies uh, but yeah, they're not – national defense. And then gangs try to impose – Provide some of those – Benefits and, and they try to get paid for it by blowing up buildings and people and things. But it, but I think even illi- talking about those examples illustrates the point. Okay. So what are some of the other then categories of? Well, okay. So p- public goods are in, are a class of transactions that are Pareto improvements, but do not occur through voluntary behavior easily. All right. Let's. The opposite of that are transactions that occur easily or not easily that degrade someone's welfare without their consent. Oh, so these so are the, the two negative. broad categories you're talking about? One well, of them but, are transactions that don't occur. One of them are transactions that do occur. Exactly. So, so public goods in class are normally thought of as goods that don't occur that ought to and then government should tax or something and provide them. Then there's something called externalities that are – Things that occur that should not occur, but if you think about it, you realize those are just the public good that's not adequately provided. There is actually property rights, i.e., property rights protection for someone to prevent their degradation of welfare without their consent is the thing that's underprovided. And so, one thing governments do is provide and enforce and defend. Property rights. Would this be like if Trevor and I got together and sold each other some sort of polluting material or whatever and then burned it in our yard and the smoke wafted into your yard and you were harmed? So you are not a party to the transaction but you're being harmed by it. Correct. And so then the question is um, what what system could be created to try to um, protect me from the side effects of your transaction? And um, in, in historically in economics, there's been two views of these matters. One is the Paguvian view of the provision of, or the dealing with externalities and another is uh, the Coasean view named after Ronald Coase who just died this, this fall um, and taught for years at the University of Chicago. In, in the Paguvian world, the purpose – a purpose of government is to – um, charge or put a price on the negative behavior that you just described. The you you have a bonfire and then yeah. the smoke comes into my property, etc. So you ought to pay a price for it. In a small person, in a small n world of of two or three or four people, one could think of the common law and trespass and nuisance as government provided apparatus that allows the the creation of an enforcement of torts of action. Again, what's the the right legal way to torts of nuisance? Okay. Torts of yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so proceedings that use a governmentally created and provided entity called the courts 
the civil law to, if you will, create and enforce complicated property rights about small person – small numbers of person externalities. And that would be the Kosian view on that side or – Well, you can even think in a Pigouvian sense that, that they would agree that the common law exists. So that's almost like a tax to some extent, the, the costs well, you, of – You have to pay for this for apparatus it. and then uh, – I mean I'm sure there's literature that, that talks about complete user fee, common law system where no one who doesn't use it doesn't pay, pay for, for it. it. I, um, you're a lawyer. Yeah. Is that uh, – that, Yes, absolutely. Um, but in most – I don't know of any jurisdiction that actually does that. I mean jurisdictions – most jurisdictions that I'm familiar with in effect um, tax people and provide the civil law as, as, a, as, as a, a public good. As a public good. Mm -hmm. um, so then, so then the uh, the the Pigouvian system tries to ascertain some sort of value, and there's a lot of there's other ways you can do that too. The regulatory agencies, maybe a carbon tax, correct, would be a example of trying to price an externality, and, and then allow people to trade in it. So that would be an example of of this really being a property rights problem in the sense of the externalities problem of bads that come from transactions is just a problem of property rights not being. Adequately delineated, correct, and defensible, correct, in the market. I mean, Pagood takes it further and 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 says, in a Pagoovian world, there's always a harmer and a harmy. There's a kind of normative notion of who ought to pay for what here. Um, so, in the uh, smoke, in the bonfire, the leaf example that you um, described earlier, um, Pagu would would, and most people probably would say right away that um, you ought to pay me to accept the uh, smoke and pollution from your um, behavior. Um, now, but in a Cosian, what Cos did is, is, is kind of take the normative out of it and say – The normative being that who has the right to be polluted and who well, on, has the right to pollute? The, in, 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 in Pagu, the, yes, this implicit notion of who – the tax or what behavior the tax ought to be on. Which is the pollution. The polluter the, yeah, the, and then yeah. the pollutee. In a Cosian world, there's two entities, two people, two corporations, two whatevers that want to use the same property at the same time for different uses and they have a conflict. And so, so the property here is like the air, the air yeah. or the whatever. So one person wants to use it to breathe and the other person wants to use it to pollute or wants to use it to enjoy fresh air. Whatever. And the other person wants to use it to pollute and there's no normative judgment there about who has the right to breathe fresh air or to pollute. Correct. And, and this typically infuriates any students or people you start talking to. So they think to it's obvious. <laughs> yeah, that it's obvious what, what – what, but Coast said let's – Stand back, and in the the classic example in the Coe's article in, in 1958 in the Journal of Law and Economics, the problem of social cost. There was a farmer and a railroad, an old-fashioned steam coal railroad that emitted soot, fire, and embers, and uh, those damaged the farmer's crops. And so, so Coe's asked. Um, would the eventual equilibrium amount of pollution allowed differ depending on whether the train had initial property rights to pollute as much as the train wished or the farmer 
had initial property rights to, com- to an environment completely free of trains. And then Coase started out this uh, d- discussion with a bargaining game, imagining that alternately that one entity had the property right to do whatever they wished. And then because it was a small person game, the other entity then bargained with the in- the initial owner of the property rights to say, I'll pay you two pollute less or if the farmer does not have rights and has to pay the train or the train then says to the farmer, I'll pay you to accept. And Coase said, asked, does it matter how we start out this game for the eventual equilibrium amount of pollution that results? And that's strict as a, as a part of a bargain. As a part of a bargain. And the Coasean answer, given assumptions that we can talk about, was no, that the efficiency uh, the eventual amount of yuck that occurred in a society was invariant with the initial to the initial distribution of property rights. But is it more more uh, related to the transaction costs then? Right, the the things that stand in the way of making a a bargain. Well, Coase said, in, in for purposes of illustration, he used a very simple example, which is two people, and so you and and we can go back to. Uh, the, the common law example that we described with your bonfire and 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 me as the neighbor in a cosian world um, the common law might have created rights or something but co said i don't care i'm an economist i want to i just does it matter whether the neighbor has to bribe you to stop burning your bonfire or you have to bribe me to accept and the cosian answer was no it does, it, it matters for wealth i.e. You're always wealthier if you get money from someone than if you have to pay someone. So property rights create wealth. The initial distribution of property rights is clearly important, but it's not important for efficiency, which is what economists care about, i.e. So the resolution of market failure in a cozying context has two aspects. One is a distributional aspect, which is who gets, who has, who ought to have the property rights. But as an economist, I don't have an answer to that. That's lawyers figure that out or the political system or something else. But what I do care about is efficiency. As an economist, do I care about whether polluter pays polluter or polluter pays polluter? And the answer in a strict cozy and framework is no. I that uh, The resulting amount of smoke or particulate matter in the atmosphere will be invariant to how the political system or legal system allocates initial property rights. Does this depend – in order for this to work, there is depend on some sort of distribution of wealth in the sense that like if the, the railroad company is polluting and I'm the farmer, I have to at least have enough resources, enough money to pay the railroad company in order to get to whatever that threshold is that they're willing to accept to reduce their pollution. Aaron, the clever student, always figures out where the professor is going and he has just – that is the – so the asterisks and footnotes to the Coase theorem are all about um, that the initial distribution of wealth other than this particular property right is such that adding this particular property right to whatever is going on elsewhere in the world is not so fundamental from a wealth distribution standpoint that the willingness to pay and the willingness to accept are not affected by the alteration of this particular property right 
given everything else that is in question. But Aaron's hit his head on it, which is – It will be affected by other distributions. Well, the, 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 the thought experiment that my colleague Jerry Taylor and I engaged in in our energy policy discussions is ANWR, the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge. We proposed in an op-ed to, to instead of fighting over whether it should be developed or not and having environmentalists fight over it, give the ownership of this to environmentalists. Give see, it, see how much it would cost for them to let you pollute? Give it to the Sierra Club. Mm -hmm. And then would they – are they really serious that they would give up a trillion dollars? <laughs> Easy to say, hard to do. Well, there's actually an example. Believe it or not, the Audubon Society, a bird preservation organization, owns private wetlands in Louisiana and they for years leased – those lands for oil and gas development in Louisiana. And Jerry and I found out this example and we used it and others uh, had did as well. And then the publicity was so bad for the Audubon Society from so. their members <laughs> that they stopped leasing it. But our point was there are always trade-offs and uh, – but the point was illustrated that if the property right in question – is so valuable to – in the eyes of those owners relative to the rest of their wealth as Aaron suggested, then the Coase theorem doesn't work, i.e. the initial distribution of property rights does determine the resulting efficiency nature of the bargaining and that – and this is Peter's theorem which is the biggest struggles that we see in, in the political world are those things or those venues, those policy areas in which the distribution of property rights is everything. And environmental politics are so vicious because probably the Coase theorem is violated, i.e., if you give initial ownership of ANWR to the Sierra Club, it will not be developed. Mm -hmm. And if you give it to the oil companies or auction it off and oil companies outbid environmentalists, environmentalists will never – get enough money voluntarily to buy it away from oil development. And so the struggle over Anwar is not just a struggle over who's wealthier and who's not and, it, and has no effects on efficiency. It probably is such a vicious struggle because everyone knows it will affect the eventual outcome. So, so let, me add, let me put this into a, a question. I like this uh, environmentalist Anwar example. Um, if someone says – so someone comes to you from the Sierra Club and they say – and you, you tell them, well, why don't you purchase Anwar? And, and they say, well, we could never compete against the oil and gas money. If that was up for sale and it was just a bidding war between oil and gas versus us, uh, the environmental concerns could never compete against the oil and gas industry. And an economist might say, well, in response to that, that means that, that the highest and best uses of that land is who pays the most for it, to which an environmentalist says, well, I disagree. The highest and best uses of that land uh, shouldn't have that much to do with who has the most money in the bank, but future generations and how much environmental concerns are valuable to us and, and how beautiful bald eagles are and other concerns like that. And maybe it's just the case that they don't like – 
they, they prefer bald eagles to oil and gas leases and oil and gas people prefer to bald eagles and they want to use government to try and make sure that they win if they don't have enough money to, to win the bidding war. And then they might say that that's a market failure. It's a market failure if the initial distribution of wealth doesn't let us compete against the oil and gas companies to save the environment for future generations. And what would you say to that? It's certainly the cases like this are difficult cases in, in the sense that it, the the easy Coase theorem cases are cases where we can show that the result is invariant to the initial distribution. And I'll, I'll give you a count, an example other than the, the ANWAR and all that. And that's um, the distribution of uh, cellular phone licenses in the United States by the FCC um, initially – well, prior to the current system we have, um, which is uh, – an auction, right? We used to have uh, licenses by metropolitan area and you anyone could apply and they put their names in a drum. <laughs> they literally did them rand they just chose a winner randomly. Okay? So that's a That seems inefficient. Well, <laughs> no, no, no. Be, I would Okay. I would downgrade you on the exam. <laughs> Notice if the Coase theorem's right, and the initial distribution doesn't matter for efficiency. It, it, it's not inefficient. Oh. It's it's just an arbitrary initial distribution. I.e., they won the lottery, and then they can sell, and then they can sell immediately. Okay. And what we found in the cellular um, phone licenses in the old system is that exactly what happened. Weird. I mean, lawyers represented people and then put in names many, many, many times, and sometimes little old ladies in nowhere won the cellular phone license for a major metropolitan area. And then within seven seconds, <laughs> law lawyers for the telecom company said, we'll give you blah million dollars. Would you give us a license? And that person would say yes. And so that's a perfect example of the Coast Theorem working, which is initial distribution matters for wealth, but it has no effect on efficiency. Anwar. The distribution of things, i.e., who owns the property rights to development, probably affects everything in in Anwar, and thus, it's not. I, I wouldn't call it a market failure, but rather, politics is an appeals court for distributional things, and in this case, the economists would have to say. Wow, the distribution of these property rights for this development will determine our future because it would it will be very difficult to undo it if we go down one road versus the other. If we give initial property rights to Anwar to the Sierra Club, there's a high very much much higher likelihood that it will not be developed than then if we give those property rights to um Anybody else other than strong environmentalists, they will in turn sell to oil companies and oil companies will develop. And, and thus, a fight to the death over that initial allocation over and over and over again. Are the, the broad – can we say though that the broad preferences about weighing the value of oil and gas versus environmental concerns is already embedded in the distribution in the sense that these oil companies didn't start They're out not forcing with, anyone but they to buy, right. but they like it's not like the oil companies just kind of appeared with with wealth, this, with wealth. Yeah. they got that wealth because people, people wanted oil. oil and so every time i go out and i 
spend 50 bucks to fill my tank with gas. This is Instead of sending $50 to the Sierra Club, I am choosing oil over yes. environmental. Environmental groups never, ever want to point – that is oil companies have been, been bad in U.S. culture since their inception. Everyone has always hated them. And thus, environmental comp- environmentalists, environmental groups always attack companies. They never go out to the suburbs and say – or everywhere. I mean, they don't go to the American people and say, all of you are the problem because you like cars and, you're cons- and you drive them and you consume oil not as, much as a consequence. Sometimes they do but not as much. Not really. Some like radicals do but and- you don't raise money. For for by causes, attacking suburbia, by, att- by attacking everyone, <laughs> right? But anyway, the the bogeyman in in American culture is always something called the company, whereas we and anyone trained in economics sees the company is just the realization of lots of people buying whatever it's selling, and so you could just go blame the consumers, but that's not useful for. Well, that that comes up with a, a thing that Aaron and I often talk about, which is how much is politics just ultimately preferences, uh, not liking what other people buy and wishing that the world had different preferences. I wish that the world – the environmentalists say I wish that the world had more of a preference for environmental future um, than they do, than they do for oil. And if you ask people in the world, the way we're going to save the, the wetlands is to go around to everyone in the world, wetlands X, whatever one you want to talk about and say – you have limited resources and you can give it either to wetlands or to your pla- – to power, to light, to power television or your plasma television or your car. And so everyone gets a chance. To, maybe they just all have a dollar and they get to put their dollar on one side. And at the end of the day, the the television and car side has more dollars right. than the wetland side. Right. And, uh, and that upsets some people. And, and maybe the, the first question is – uh, and maybe you won't answer this from an economist standpoint, but the, should we be using politics to try and correct that via some sort of forceful coercion method? Isn't that when we well, go to politics? That's right? the the division between the disciplines. I mean, the um, when I taught, I always was a half political scientist, half economist, and therefore didn't fit in well with either. And the the normative assumption within a political science departmental context almost always is. That the purpose of politics and the correct purpose of politics is to fix and remedy and adjust market outcomes. And but within an economics context, there's a much more limited view that no, you should only do that if and only if there's something called market failure, which is what we've been talking about today. And then there's something called distribution and economics has a discipline, has nothing to say about that. And then – other disciplines do, and then and then and, you bring in public choice, <laughs> which is the economics of government failure. And, and if all those work out, maybe you should use government. Would that be an accurate way of putting it? Do you think? Yeah, or for your viewpoint, the and again, even if you want to do something about distribution, then the there's the complicated way and there's the simple way. And again, what I've learned over the years in studying all the markets I've studied is that most markets don't have market failures. Instead, the people's complaint with that market is really distributional in nature. They just don't know it. And then you never should correct, even in an, in an economic framework of, outside of libertarianism, within economics, you can see it now in the struggle over the minimum wage, and right, altering a price, 
why would you want to alter a price? Well, you really want to make the distribution of income for poor people different than it it already is. David Newmark, who's a good economist, uh, had a blog post in the New York Times Sunday, Saturday, um, on, gee, we have the earned income tax credit. You don't, you don't want to alter the labor market directly. What you want it, I mean, the earned income tax credit directly gives money only to low-wage workers that have children, whereas the minimum wage gives it to teenagers. Gives, it's just a, it's, it's not a very exactly. targeted yeah. intervention. And it affects the price of labor, which is a disincentive for employers. Whereas the earned income tax credit, employer doesn't know whether you do or don't. I mean, just sees your price for labor. If the society subsidizes that person additionally, doesn't affect the employer demand for labor one way or the other. And so from an economist's point of view, even if you if you want to do something about distribution, you should do it not through any particular market. You should do it more directly, not just not distorting markets, but more right. directly to who you want to help. Yeah. Is that does the minimum wage give us kind of an example then of what goes wrong in a lot of this market failure and then government solutions, again with scare quotes, uh, in, in that we have a situation that we that people have identified as a market failure with the, as they're using the term, as which they're, they're using, using it the term, right. incorrectly, Correct. as we've discussed, um, where they're saying. The people at the bottom of the income distribution are not earning enough money. The, the market has failed them and failed all of us because it's not distributing enough money to the bottom of the income distribution. So we're going and to – they're using that term as you said. They're not correct. really saying there are no gains to trade here. They're discriminating. You know, they're not saying – what they're really saying is I don't like this outcome. Right. And that's a misuse. And then, and then they've intervened so that the solution then that they give is to – have government go in and mess with prices by raising the cost of employing low-wage workers. And so they, they're using government to fix what's not really a market failure, but it still is something they don't like. But then one of the problems is it often makes things worse because rather than getting lots of more money for the people at the bottom of the income distribution, you simply now price them out of the market and they're getting zero money. Yes, and, and uh, David Newmark actually has done interesting work showing – an ironic, weird side effect of a higher minimum wage is to increase the dropout rate. Oh, that's a good. That's uh, I mean, makes sense because right? if you need less school to get a certain wage, then you don't have to stay in school, and a lot of people don't like school. And yeah, so, I mean, if you're on the a, margin, if you're, I'm like, I'm right about to drop out. I'm like. Right about to drop out. If someone give me a job that will make, give me ten dollars an hour, I will drop out of school right now. And then, whoop! There it is, ten dollars an hour job. Not that that job was created by minimum wage, but that's what they would think, right? Well, the, it didn't create the, jobs; it created the wage. It get creates floor. the possibility of being employed given your skill level at a higher price than you observed before this rule went into effect, and therefore, you change your behavior. I mean, they, uh, uh, anyway. So it. it some of the most interesting work on the minimum wage just is by David Newmark. I guess my question then is: Is this a common pattern? This this Across pattern of markets, when you yes. misidentify a market failure and then try to fix it with government making it worse, is this just a common thing that happens in lots of realms when people misuse this term market failure? I think so. Yes. I mean, my um, I've studied the microeconomics of market intervention since the. You know the late seventies, and uh, in all the markets I've studied and written about and taught about, I tend to conclude that um, there really wasn't any market failure in this market anyway. 
Sometimes there is and then we could talk about those. But basically in most markets, they work. But they, their outcomes that whatever or some organized group of some sort or the population as a whole doesn't like. What they don't realize is that thing they don't like is, is distributional in nature. They, everyone wishes poor people made more money. Everyone wishes things cost less. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that – so, OK, we could – we can use the tax code and we can rearrange the, the distribution of income and wealth. Um, to do that, you do not need to have telecommunications regulation, OSHA, um, environmental well, – again, the environmental regulation, there really are market failure. We don't have property – adequate property rights for the air and for the water and we could um, – we needed – we need to create um, property rights and tradable emission rights and things like that even in a libertarian world yeah. for those things. Um, and, and, and so that market – there is a need for some policy uh, intervention. However, what we've actually done with the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act is nothing close to what a, an economist would recommend. And if, if bad – so if we get bad policies when we misidentify market failures, how difficult is it to identify market failures in the first place? Because it seems like you gave these kind of two broad categories that, of things that are market failures. Pure one is the public goods, goods and one is the – negative externalities. Right. But both of those seem like the kind of thing where you could look at a situation and tell whether it meets that. Like you could ask, is this a pure public good by this very restricted definition that That's is used in I... economics or are there negative externalities? The answer to those is no, then it's not a market failure right. and we shouldn't intervene. So that seems pretty straightforward. Correct. So why isn't well, it? If you read what I tried to do in my classes and what all instructors do and in, in that teach masters in policy students to, to be policy people in Washington and if you read most – almost any economics blog, regardless of the political persuasion of the, of the author, um, economists are pretty strict in the way you described about that. Um, and, and so what I've learned though is that most um, economists actually don't have – aren't involved in regulation to a surprising degree. The people from law schools are. <laughs> um, and so I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think one of the most interesting intellectual trends uh, since since I was a graduate student is the role of tenured economists in elite law school training. And I have um, I pin my own hopes on better government, i.e., less government, um, coming from that training, so that the cavalier use of the term we're talking about today would shame people in Georgetown dinner parties in, in <laughs> once they have degrees from leading law schools now in a way that was not true 30 years ago where you could go through regulatory law and not learn what I'm – what we're talking about today. But you cannot escape elite law school training now in what I'm describing uh, because of the, the rise of the field that we're talking about which is law and economics. OK. So to summarize uh, on a question of market failures and maybe just what should government be doing from an economist standpoint uh, and we look at people who say government should be doing this and here's a problem uh, and ideas of market failures that we've been discussing, how would you summarize your view of, of when people think government should step in? Well, I'm agreeing with what Aaron said uh, earlier which is that the uh, – if we – 
relentlessly pursue in a very careful language kind of framework that we've been using today, a, a discussion like that about anything. When I poke and pry uh, – The question of here is a problem. And, and the Congress the or the president has, ought to do and X. is being drilled or not being drilled. Right. Here is a problem and it needs to be fixed. Most of the – like 95 percent of the time, if I relentlessly pursue precise use of language with this person, I will find and I tend to be able to convince them that in fact they're misusing the term market failure and misusing the – the term as a rationale for government intervention, that in fact their complaint with this market is, is distributional in nature, that they wish that the distribution of property rights or the distribution of wealth or the distribution of income, the flow that comes from those property rights, they wish that were different somehow. And rather than needing a specific intervention in that market, be a telecom or energy or labor or in fact, the person person wishes that rich rich people were less rich and poor people were were not as poor and and uh, the and then I can describe then we need to drift off into what I call Rawls versus no, those normative of, political uh, philosophy stuff yeah and the economic capabilities of a government to redistribute whether it ought to um, and then the the the, the the more devastating insight I offer is that if you intervene in sectors for distributional reasons, you actually will probably have no distributional effect and, and that's the – Expand on that a little bit. Well, that, assume two cases. Okay. Um, a case one is a sector. Um, we throw a regulation at it or we throw money at it or something like that for distributional purposes. But the sector has no entry barriers. So land, labor and capital can enter that sector post-intervention. So can we think of a good example of such a, a sector to um, bring this down to the ground possibly? Let's uh, – well, let me – I can think of one more easily that has restricted entry and then I'll talk and then I'll work. So farm subsidies are a classic example. They're – we intervene in that sector and we regulate the heck out of farming. Um, in a very surreal way, yes. <laughs> for, for distributional reasons. There's a romance about um, the poor. All of us, if we go back three generations, had farmers in our in our background. We love family farms. We love family farms. And and if we're honest, uh, my, my own family, I'm the first generation not to farm. Farming's hard. <laughs> and most people who are now urban remember – or no relatives that were farmers and know how hard it was and knew the role that uh, something called government programs may have played in, in resolving bad years for Uncle Bob. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, even among urban voters, there's a sympathy to something called intervention in the farm sector. It's just a distribution problem though. Just – yeah. The dis your income on average is too low from farming or it's too variable. There's, there's only two things that can go on. Usually it's the variance that, that's bad about farming. Sometimes it's the mean but a lot of the time it's the variance. Well, the, there's a limited amount of good land in the country and then there's lots of bad land. And so good land is in Iowa. It has a foot of organic soil and uh, you can grow corn till. Uh, the cows come home for that. It, it's, you don't have to do much. The input costs are low. 
So if we throw money at farming, that's a limited uh, a factor of production, i.e. good land. And so guess what happens because of, of, of our intervening in farming, which is it's the value of land in Iowa goes up. Okay, so the so the to use the jargon, the subsidy gets capitalized into land values. And once that happens, and that happens only once, all future farmers, all future owners, all new entrants into farming have to pay for the privilege of being subsidized. So this is which means like, they're not being subsidized. So this is like Archer like Archer's Daniel Midland, like or any sort of large farm that captured the land uh, and had it. Uh, when the subsidy was granted, their land suddenly became incredibly valuable, and every it's valuable until the subsidy goes away. Correct. And and now the subsidy is no longer it's captured once by the first seller, and then every single other person just has to pay. Well, to be precise, it's actually captured by whomever owns the asset in question when entries restricted, i.e., it's good land and there's a limited supply of it, and. The market recognizes that the subsidy is going to happen. So you can, you can imagine it happening before the program's enacted. But the price would go up. There's before, an expectations yeah. game. Yes. And similarly with deregulation, it's the opposite, right? So if you ever, I mean, I've seen studies which is if we ended farm subsidies, land values in the Midwest would go down by a third. And they're right. <laughs> uh, so the, the difficulty of deregulating a sector once it's on the government dole and their entry barriers, is that the deregulation would create wealth losses for some people. For some pe now, I wrote an article uh, with an accountant uh, almost 20 years ago now on taxi medallions in New York. It's the same kind of thing where the restricted entry asset is explicit. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's this right to operate a, a vehicle, a yellow vehicle in New York, in Manhattan, and hail passengers. There's 11,000 or so of these medallions and they were created in the 1930s and the number is fixed. It hasn't risen And they're worth ever. about $700,000 last time I checked. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've seen over a million oh, wow. with, with the rebound from the recession. So, so what, well, what does that mean? Well, it is the capitalized value of the excess profits that come from the rate restrictions yeah. that, that, that the fares are – governed by the city of New York and they're higher than they need be and blah, blah, blah. So it's very valuable. What uh, my co-author and I did is we compared buying a medallion versus leasing and we said, hmm, if politics is if, – if markets are forward-looking and the, and the expected value of deregulation is included in the value of assets in sectors that have privileges – then the present value of renting a medallion in perpetuity will be higher than the market value of a medallion because perpetuity isn't maybe possible could because be could it could be deregulated. We, so, you're, so your your theory would have been if there was an expectation to try and put this into layman terms, like everything has a, a present value, includes future expectations. So buying something had a, has a longer holding time theoretically than leasing something. Will the goodies for this thing go on forever or will they be limited? Does anyone – so is there anyone predicting that deregulation is going to happen? And guess what we found? No. Well, no. I yes. would imagine no. No. Yeah. Yes. We found – yes, they are. Oh, they are. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Believe it or not, even though deregulation has never occurred in the medallion market for the city of New York, 
we found that the market is acting as amortizing the rental value of the medallion as if it would have no value after year 20. Hmm. And so why is that? And so we, calc- we concluded that, well, we've looked for everything else and we think that the market acts as if there's a 5% chance of deregulation every year. I guess it's not zero in a year. And so the same thing for farmland in Iowa, right? The farmers would demand – I mean this gets into libertarian theories of whether we ought to compensate entities when we change the rules of the game. When I first came to Cato in the mid-90s, there was electricity deregulation going on. And Roger Pallon and I had a debate about whether we should compensate the utilities for changing the rules of the game. Based on my work, I said no because the stock value for the electric companies takes into account the possibility of deregulation. And Roger said, well, no. They Constitutional just, law. Yeah, that. and so we had the economists versus the common law. We were talking about farming because you set it up as an example of entry. a restricted right. entry as to contrast it to unrestricted Let's entry. Let's talk about housing. I, I was trying to okay. think of a market where we subs- – regulated and alter it through government policy a lot for distributional reasons but there's no entry restrictions. So what happens in that sector? Well, you throw money, throw cash flow or throw a positive regulation at that sector. Land, labor – so initially some wages rise and profits rise and things in in that sector but everyone else realizes, wow, that's a good deal. Let's. Let, I'll get my realtor's license, or I'll get my housing license, construction license. And I'm going to build houses. Well, the new equilibrium occurs, and then there's no excess wages, there's no excess profits, and there's no excess capital return on capital in that sector, even with the subsidy, mm-hmm. because there aren't any entry restrictions. So everyone, everyone has entered the market to take every single excess one that could possibly be there. There's too much capital, too much land and too much labor in that sector. It's inefficient. It's been distorted by government policy. But there are no distributional advantages to any of the participants. So what's ironic once you have an economist view of helping sectors and not helping sectors and what happens, you realize that all – even though everything is distributional, none of the sectors in which we do things for distributional reasons actually ever have distributional advantages <laughs> if there's no entry barriers there's just too much stuff in that sector but no one's getting excess profits no one's getting excess wages and no one's uh um uh getting excess land rents but if we change the policy if we deregulate a sector where we've thrown a regulation at it or money and we we take that away then there's the bleeding. You have to have capital going out, labor going out, and land going out of that sector, and people don't like that. Yeah. Um, and, and so they resist uh, politically, usually. So all this leaves us, in the end, pretty skeptical about government regulation from an economist standpoint. Even from distribution, if you try to do it a particular market at a time, you are wasting your time. I want to thank Peter for joining us today on Free Thoughts, and thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments about today's episode, you can find me on Twitter at arossp. That's A-R-O-S-S-P. And you can find me on Twitter at T.C. Burris, T-C-B-U-R-R-U-S. Free Thoughts is a project of libertarianism.org and the Cato Institute and is produced by Evan Banks. 
To learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.